All right. Well, we uh, we really emptied out tonight. There's a lot of kids here. <laughs> Quite a few kids. Um, seems like more than more than usual, which is a great thing. Um, let's talk about this passage, and you and you'll notice you may have noticed uh, on the front of the bulletin and in the uh, sermon outline there that uh, the title to this sermon is pretty simple, and yet a little daunting. It's called predestination. Predestination. That's what I want to speak to you tonight about uh, because I think this story, which on the surface of it seems kind of like a weird birth story that doesn't seem to have too much. So there's a dog that's not enjoying us out there. It's kind of distracting me, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, this, uh, what seems like just a weird uh, birth story, actually has tremendous spiritual implications, which the Bible later pulls out. So this passage is used by Paul. This passage is used by the prophet Malachi, uh, both of them to teach, and by the writer to the Hebrews, to teach the doctrine of what we call predestination. And so that's the reason why I want to bring that topic to you. All right, so if you look at your bulletin, there are a few uh, points that I want to make tonight. First of all, I want to talk to you about what predestination is. Secondly, um, what does it have to do with salvation? And lastly, why is it important to believe in it? Y'all ready? There's no controversy here. What, what could go wrong, right? So let's just dive right in. Um, last week we, uh, we ended uh, a little bit by talking about this story. And, and we said that uh, God was concerned that the promise that he made with Abraham would continue to get passed on. Remember we talked about it being an inheritance. Well, if you'll go back to that in your mind and think about salvation as an inheritance... Uh, one of the key things about an inheritance is it is given on purpose to specific people, right? Um, you really wouldn't call it an inheritance if it weren't something given on, pur- on purpose by someone to specific other people. And as we kind of look at the story here, we see that same thing happening. Not only does Isaac have two children so that he could pass down what Abraham passed to him, But God, from the time they're in the womb, makes a difference between the two boys. Uh, So as to ensure that one of them would have the faith necessary to receive the inheritance that was coming down from Abraham and from his dad Isaac. Right? God is showing intentionality. God is showing purpose. And God is showing a particular intentionality to bless specific people. All right, so let's start with that first point. God has a purpose. God has a purpose. Now, I think on the surface of it, everybody would agree with that statement. Uh, it's really not that controversial of a statement, no matter what type of Christian a person is. God has a plan. God has a purpose. Yeah, of course. Why wouldn't he? Uh, everybody tries to work according to a plan. Uh, where this starts to get a little controversial is that God's plan actually predetermines, in this case, the outcome of these two boys' lives. That's where it starts to get controversial, okay? And so let's look at it. First of all, there in verse 19, notice what it says. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's sons. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of so-and-so, and it goes on. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Just like his grandfather or his father Abraham had done, he prayed and God came and gave to Rebekah the gift of conception. She conceived. 
Uh, And then it says, the children struggled within her, which caused her to ask a question. Now, let's talk about this. What does it mean that the children were struggling within her? What does that mean? Ladies, any thoughts? Kicking a lot, probably. Something, some kind of disturbance. What's that? Dominance. Dominance. Yeah. Something's not right, you know. She, she has become pregnant after 20 years of praying, by the way. That, that's the gap between when they got married at 40 years old and when the children are born at 60 years old. So she's finally pregnant after 20 years, and yet that motherly instinct is there. She knows something is not quite right in her womb. Now, today if that happened, what would you do, ladies? Ultrasound, Yes. <laughs> Go to the doctor and have them take a look, right? You would ask them questions. They would read the ultrasound and tell you exactly, scientifically speaking, what's going on. What does Rebecca do? She goes to God, which is really cool, I think. I mean, this is just maybe a, you could say this is a side lesson, but really it's not that much of a side lesson because we see here that Rebecca and Isaac have such a profound respect for the role of God in everyday events. They're not able to have children. They're not able to conceive. Again, what would we do today? Go to the doctor. Get them to fix it. What, does, what do they do? Not, not that you shouldn't go to the doctor, by the way. Don't take me that way. But besides just going to the doctor, what they do? They prayed. Struggle going on in her womb. We would just go to the doctor. What do they do? They pray. It says, Rebecca inquired of the Lord. Which is to say what? She asked him. It's like God's her doctor. (laughs) God, what's going on inside of me? I don't understand. Something doesn't feel right. What is happening? What is about to happen with these these children that I'm about to have? And what does God do? He gives her an answer. Actually, a very direct answer about what's going on. It's not a medical answer. Right? He doesn't get into the medical causes of why you know, those, those children are restless in the womb. Instead, it's what kind of answer? How would you describe the answer there in verse 23? Like a prophecy answer. This is like a foretelling of the future type answer from God. Jan? She didn't. Yeah, exactly. Um, there, or at least there's no indication that she did, right, until she had inquired of the Lord. And then, of course, he lets the cat out of the bag <laughs> ahead of time. But, yeah, she probably had no clue. And so God is giving not just a medical, scientific explanation for the disruption that she feels within her womb, but he's using this occasion to give her a forecast of what's going to happen in the lives of the two people, surprise, that you have in your womb. And it's a very specific forecast, right? What does it say? Two nations are in your womb, which, I mean, think about that. It, you know, is he suggesting she's pregnant with nations? No. What is he suggesting? Or to, Saying, not just suggesting, but saying. 
division. Uh, These two children are one day going to become nations that are going to be at odds with each other. And the fact that they're at odds with each other in the womb is just a preview of the many, many years and even centuries and even millennia between these two boys and their descendants that's going to carry out through history. The two peoples from within you, God says, shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the, other, the older shall serve the younger. How sure is God? He's got no doubt. Do you see that? The word shall means what? It's going to happen. It could be a directive too, like thou shalt or you shall do this or that. But in this case, it's an assurance not only of what she should do. Actually, there's no commandment in there, right? This is just a declaration of what will be. A statement of future facts. Now, can you state future facts? That, I mean, you, can say, you can say, yeah, out loud things that are futuristic, but that doesn't mean they're going to happen. And sometimes you may you do educated guesses and they may end up, like, for example, the uh, hurricane brewing. You know, people know a lot about that and they, they could pretty well tell you generally what's going to happen. But that's all guesswork. It's only the Lord in the Bible who can say this shall happen. But of course, the Lord doesn't always say that people in fact he rarely actually does this most of the time you have to live it out and it's God's secret <laughs> that he knows what's going to happen and how it's going to happen Alex that's right exactly yeah which is wonderful And actually a theme that's all through the Bible, ladies. Um, God often skips over the man and works with the woman. Um, You know, sometimes he does it the other way too, but but there are wonderful stories of where God is, is directly working through women, especially when it comes to the bearing of the children that shall save the world. Um this this one, Hannah and Samuel and you know, uh Bathsheba and Solomon and Mary and Jesus. Pretty cool. Yeah, and there's no indication, is there, Alex, that Isaac even knows at first what this is. In fact, as the story plays out, it, it actually seems like Isaac doesn't know. Because what does it say about Isaac's attitude towards the two boys? He favors the one that God had announced to Rebecca that God doesn't favor. Right? And doesn't favor the one that he had announced to Rebecca that he does in fact favor. So he's got it backwards. And this continues throughout until the very end of Isaac's life, as if Isaac never fully quite knew what God had said all those years ago when the two babies were in her womb. It's an announcement of the future ahead of time. God is certain about it. Why? Or how? That's a better way. How is God certain about it? Because he knows everything. What's that? It's what he planned, right? Um, Now you say, well, well, maybe it's not that he planned it. Maybe it's just that he knows it. 
Well, think about that, though, for a second. Okay, say that is true. Say God doesn't plan everything, but he knows what will happen and what will not happen. Well, what's the difference? Say more about that. That's right, yeah, exactly. And even if it weren't that he controlled it, but he just was able to give the forecast, that forecast is still just as certain by necessity as if, it, as, as if God had controlled it, right? You see what I mean? The only things that happen are the things that happen. The things that don't happen don't happen. Right? And so when God looks ahead at time, he sees what will happen. And it's certain, I believe, because he directs it as well as he foresees it, not just merely foresees it. Yeah. We're not. It is the tricky part. And you can kind of see in this story how self-will is certainly not taken out of it because this plan of God, though it's announced in verse 23, doesn't actually get worked out until... Years and years of decisions that both of these boys end up making and decisions that Rebecca makes and decisions that Isaac makes, both good and bad ones, all of them kind of come together as threads in a tapestry. By the way, also God is not responsible for the evil things that people do. Um, This is how great God is, that God can control evil actions of evil people without himself being complicit in the evil. Right? Now, that's a wonderful teaching that the Bible gives. Um, It's not that evil people doing evil things are somehow rogue and out of God's control. But it's also not that God, because he permits them, that doesn't mean he approves of what they've done. God is able to use evil things for just and good ends. And there is a lot of evil things that's about to come in the lives of Esau and Jacob, one of which we read today. When Esau sells his birthright for what? He sells eternal salvation for lentil soup. It could have been a steak. That would have been, yeah, a little bit better. Uh, Alex? Yeah. Right. He was, yeah. And that was his birthright. That was his birthright, yeah. He knew that. Yeah. yeah. They, he was supposed to be the one that was going to perpetuate the family and the birthright. Precisely. And that wasn't, he despised it. It wasn't a big deal to him. Which is why it says in verse 34, it makes a point to underline, thus Esau despised his birthright, which Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 talks about. You might want to actually turn there. Um, If you keep your finger in Genesis, turn to Hebrews 12. Because part uh, part of learning how to read these stories in the Old Testament is learning how to read them along with the other writers of the Bible. Because they they have a better vantage point on what God meant than we do, because they were also inspired by God. And so look at um, Hebrews 12. Verse 13, or, well, let's, yeah, let's start in 
I'll start in verse 14, actually. I'll read it to you. Uh, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So, so Vivian, this doesn't take away the fact that we're responsible to obey God and to follow God and make right decisions. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord, it says. Uh, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And that's referring to both this story and the story towards the end of Esau's life when he does try to make it all better, and it just is too late, which is what God, of course, forecasted in Genesis 25, verse 23. Do you see? God has a purpose. The events of history aren't random, but the events of history are a part of an unfolding plan that God's been working on from the dawn of time, a plan that he made in eternity. Which is why God is able to name the end from the beginning, when he wants to. When he wants to, God can name the end from the beginning. And it's not just because he sees, you know, this person's going to do that, this person's going to do that. So I'm guessing, like a a meteorologist, I'm guessing the storm's going to go this way. No, it's that God actually knows that this will happen because it is all God's plan for it to happen. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. There were. T- Behold, yeah, yeah. Behold, there were twins. Exactly. So even right away, boom, she's beginning to see. Wow, what I heard from God is real. Remember, they don't have sonograms. You know, I don't know what ways they had of trying to figure out whether they were twins or not. I'm sure they had ways that they tried to do that, but. Measured the belly. Maybe. Uh, they probably had tons of strategies. I'm sure none of them were exactly accurate. <laughs> but once the babies came out, that's pretty accurate to determine what they are. And here they come, you know. One comes out looking like a wild man, <laughs> hairy all over, red, you know, ruddy, meaning you know, red complexion. And the other coming out grabbing a hold of his heel like he's trying to cheat something away from him. And thus begins the unfolding of what God has said would happen to Rebecca. By the way, why do you think God said this to Rebecca? Uh, he doesn't often do this. He hardly ever tells us the end from the beginning. Um, of course, he's told us a lot of things in here, but there's a whole lot of things he hasn't told us. Well, why does he choose to tell Rebecca this specific thing about her children? Okay. Yeah. Right. It could be that, yeah, I like that. Yeah, that could be. You kind of see it as the story goes on. She's the one to kind of hold Isaac back from over-favoring you know, Esau. And so she's kind of the voice of reason to say, do you really want to over-favor Esau? I mean, after all, Esau is a pretty wild guy. Is he really going to be the one that takes this inheritance and passes it down? 
And, and part of the way she was, knew how to do that and had the courage to do that is she had it in her heart. God told her, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm, gonna, I'm placing my love on Jacob. I just find the story so fascinating because it's such a, in some ways it's such an ordinary event. You get pregnant, you go through a pregnancy, you have trouble, and you're trying to figure out what's wrong. It's just so ordinary. Twins are born, one's got hair, one doesn't. I mean, this, this just has the ring of true events about it. And yet, in the middle of those everyday, ordinary events, God comes in and says, here's my plan. And, and these ordinary events are the way that I'm working my plan out. You know, It's great. I think a great place to look. Uh, this is not fatalism, by the way. Uh, the, the belief in, in God's plan and purpose and predestination is not fatalism because fate is this idea that an impersonal force guides everything. That, you know, you can't help it, I can't help it, this what's going to be is going to be, and it's just, it's impersonal, it's cold. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches a personal God directs the, the course of events in the world. That's very different than an impersonal just shoop, what will be will be and you know sarah sarah, right? Very different. Here you have a God who loves and hates and moves towards people and away from people and all those things. He saves and he judges and a personal living God directing and controlling the events of the world. Very different than fate. Uh, also, you know, as Vivian points out, this is not inconsistent with our choices that we have to make as the story will bear out. Esau consistently makes unfaithful choices. Jacob consistently un- makes unfaithful choices, but the grace of God wrestles Jacob into submission. Whereas the grace of God does not wrestle Esau into submission. Esau is left to his own devices. Jacob is loved and wrestled in love into submission to God, which is a beautiful thing. God is not the author of sin. You know, God is carrying out here a good purpose with good ends in mind. Remember what God had said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's goal is blessing, not cursing. And so even though there may be Many bad events, many evil events in the history of the world and in your life and my life, the ultimate end that God is working towards is an end of blessing and an end of salvation and life. Uh, This also doesn't discourage effort. Um, In fact, Rebecca takes this message and it prompts her efforts, we're going to see. It prompts many efforts for her to make sure that Esau doesn't get favored because for some reason... Isaac just loved Esau better, and maybe it's because he was, he was sort of the man's man, as it says in verse 27, a verse that I've always been able to relate to. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tent. And that last part I think I have always identified with, with Jacob. Quiet dwelling indoors, an indoorsman, really. <laughs> Now, I do like the outdoors, but, you know, the indoors are special. <laughs> so, isn't it, isn't it cool? And, and so Isaac is always going to favor Esau because he's the hunter. He's the, he's the man's man. He makes me great stew out of his game. I'm going to give him everything. And Rebecca's this presence the whole time that says, you don't want to do that. 
Esau does not have good character. Esau doesn't listen to God. He's going to ruin everything if you give it to him. Yes, clearly, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. He was a skillful hunter, and Jacob was just a quiet man. Did you hear that difference? Skillful, quiet. One of those sounds better than the other, doesn't it? <laughs> skillful sounds a great deal better in the eyes of people. He's big, he's red, he's hairy, <laughs> he hunts. The other guy, quiet, retiring, hangs out with mama, you know. Yeah. Uh, later it calls him a smooth man. Um, you know, not, not hairy, not, not manly. And so yes, I think Esau is your guy. You're looking at the family, you're thinking, who's going to be the, the guy? got to be Esau. It's not. Right? God forecasted it, and, and Rebecca doesn't take that forecast and say, well, God told it me it's going to happen, so I don't have to do anything. Instead, she cultivated throughout her life an obedience to God to take up for Jacob, to, 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 take, you know, to take up for him when Isaac wouldn't give him any respect. Clint, I saw your hand up, I thought, a while back, though. I've been going on since I saw it. Sorry. Uh, I just was thinking about how Armenia is that God consistently uh, foretells what's going to happen, but it is, um, it's not up to us to figure out how that happens. And so you see, you know, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and see yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's not how we want God to execute. You know, God made this promise. I mean, of, of sand the seashore, we'll make you all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's got to be His way. It's not our way to determine how we bring about what God. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we cannot save ourselves um, in any way. And in, in fact, even Rebecca's going to mess up here too. She, sometimes she's going to verge into scheming. And she's going to get herself and Jacob into heaps and heaps of trouble. Scheming is never good. She, she should just st- stick with trusting <laughs> and obedience. Obedience is different than scheming. Obedience is doing what God tells you to do and trusting his bigger plan, even whether you know it or not. Scheming is trying to make a plan happen, you know, whether you think it's God's or not. And, and there's a very big difference between those two things. All right, well, let's, think, let's, th- let's pull this one step further. Okay, God has a plan. That's, that's essentially what predestination means. I mean, by the way, I didn't say this, but the word predestination, pre means what? Before, destined, or destination. Where you're going, where you're headed. It's the fixing of your destination beforehand is what it means. It's to decide something beforehand. It's all it means. And uh, here, clearly, God has fixed something about these two boys beforehand. Now, what is it exactly? I want to pull it one step further. It is actually eternal salvation for Jacob. 
and eternal judgment for Esau. That's what's at issue here. Uh, when it says in verse uh, 23, uh, the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Later in the Bible, Paul, for example, points that out and says, that tells you that God from this moment is announcing who he had chosen for salvation and who he had not chosen for salvation. The, the older Esau, and he was only like two seconds older, but still older, and in that culture, the older always inherited. The male older inherits everything in that culture. The older will serve the younger, meaning the younger will have bestowed upon him the fullness of the blessing that God promised Abraham, which was not just physical, but spiritual. He would receive the spiritual blessings of the covenant, whereas Esau would be left out of those spiritual blessings. And the story that unfolds, which we've already mentioned, uh, where Esau despises his birthright is just an example of how that gets played out. Um, the fact is Esau doesn't really want the eternal blessings of God. And God lets him have what he wants, which is not the eternal blessings of God. Now, this is an important thing, though, to notice. What is Jacob's attitude towards the eternal blessing of God in verses 29 to 34? How would you describe it when he says, sell me your birthright? Quite eager. Quite eager, but is it eager in a good way? He's, he's, a scheme, yeah, he's scheming, and he's trying to cheat, and he's, he thinks, catch this, he thinks that the eternal blessings of God can be bought with a price. That, that even they could be bought with a bowl of lentil soup, which is not a very high view of eternal salvation, <laughs> that you can buy it with a bowl of lentil soup off your brother when he's tired. So the fact is, you have two brothers here who are equally unworthy of the blessing of God's salvation. Yes. Yes. Would this have been binding? Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, um, yeah, the way they looked at swearing oaths, I mean, it's similar to today, but... But but we are a little bit we're a lot of bit probably more loose about it. But but back then they they took a very big deal about swearing. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know yeah. I think an actual transaction. That these are two grown men at this point, and an actual transaction has taken place. A very sad one that Esau is never able to recover again. Um. But I, but I, what I, the, you know, but the point too is that Jacob is not really that much better in heart at this point, and yet what you begin to see playing out is again God is determined to wrestle Jacob into loving and delighting in and freely choosing the inheritance, whereas he's not determined to do that for Esau. Uh, and that is the two things that the Bible calls, on the one hand, election, where God chooses a person for salvation, chooses to bring them from dead in sins and trespasses all the way to eternal glory. He determines to do that 
from the beginning and will do it. Reprobation, on the other hand, is when God chooses to not take someone from dead in sin to eternal glory, but to leave them dead in sin, to glorify his justice. And here in, in Esau's case, that's exactly what he's done. He's, he's not giving to Esau less than what he deserves. He's given to Esau exactly what he deserves. He's not giving to Jacob what he deserves. He's giving to Jacob what he does not deserve. Right? And so the, the common objection that many Christians make against the Bible's idea of predestination is, well, that is not fair. It's just not fair. And I, and I understand. It, you know, when you first hear it, it just doesn't sound fair. It sounds like maybe God is arbitrary. But notice, God is not unjustly partial. God does not show favoritism on an unjust level. Neither of these boys deserve anything from God. Is God not free to choose to show anybody he wants to more than they deserve? as long as he also gives to the others exactly what they deserve? Scripture says yes. Scripture says God has that right. God can do that. And Scripture not only says that he can do that, but Scripture says that's actually how he does it. That's actually how eternal salvation gets carried out into people's lives, is starting with his eternal choice to set his love on someone, to bring them from their sins into glory, while some are passed by in that gracious gift. Uh, we don't know why those that are saved are saved and those that are passed by are passed by. We don't know. We don't believe God is arbitrary in it. We believe he's absolutely fair and just and right. We just know that it is the case, that not everyone in the end will be saved, that God knows it, and that God has planned it. Let me... Um, let me turn with you to, again to the New Testament. Remember, the best way to read these stories is to read them alongside other Bible writers. They're better than me in their interpretations because they, they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So go to Romans 9. And we'll start in verse 6. This is a commentary on the story that we're reading tonight. And I, I, you can judge whether you think what this, says, what this commentary says about that story is the same thing that I'm saying about this story, okay? <clears throat> you, you can judge that. And I'd love to hear interaction too. Uh, Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And listen to this. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Thoughts? 
Have I been following Paul's commentary in my own commentary? <laughs> I mean, think for yourself, you know. This is a deep issue. I, I get it, and there's lots of thoughts on it. But what do you think? Before they were born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who called, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, that next quote is from Malachi, who also writes a commentary on the story. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, hate there doesn't mean unfair persecution, like it might mean for us. Hate and love for God means to choose to show mercy versus to choose to give them over to their sin. And so if you could paraphrase, Jacob have I chosen to save from his sins, Esau have I chosen to leave in his sins. You see. Thoughts. Dare I ask. Very humbling. Isn't it? Yeah. Why, why is it humbling to you, Ryan? That's right. I mean, I'm just, mm. You know, Jacob was just as deceptive. Yes. And I mean, in the sins of my mm-hmm. own heart, you know, why would God show me mercy? Mm. Not the person outside here. Absolutely. Very humbling. That should not be the response, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The Bible describes this as God's elect, not God's elite. Make sure you get those words straight. Uh, God's elect are not elite. Uh, God's elect are simply loved by God. That's what makes us different. Loved in a saving way. Now, I do believe there's a way in which God loves every single person. Absolutely. I, I would not ever deny that, and I think the Bible teaches that. But in a saving, determined sense... God loves his elect, you know. That's what sets them apart. Uh, Jacob, in fact, is going to be shown to be a scoundrel, right? A shyster. (laughs) Not a good person by nature, and yet God is going to slowly work on him. One author calls his story, living in the grip grip of relentless grace. That's, that's the title of Jacob's life. And I think that's a beautiful way to describe the story in Genesis of Jacob, which we're going to see over the next several weeks. Living in the grip of relentless grip. God will not let that guy go. He is a squirmy, smooth, sinful man. And yet God will not let him go because God has determined to give his inheritance to him. Other thoughts? Jan? Yes. 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 No. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Please don't. Um, I know we don't always like the word mystery because it seems like uh, it could be a cop out. You can just say mystery. And, but, but really, this is a mystery in, in all seriousness. Um, how can it be that the sovereign God determines everything and yet we also make choices that we're responsible for? I don't know. I couldn't do that. But just because I can't do it doesn't mean he can't do it. 
You know? And so the Bible requires you to believe both things. You're responsible. We should share the gospel with every single person who breathes to invite them to Jesus. And yet God has chosen whom he will save. And he will, in fact, save every one of them. Because Christ died to save them. And Christ's death will not be wasted. Right? We've got to believe all that together. Even, and that's a, that, that stretches the brain, doesn't it? Which should get us back to humble. And I think also worship. This fuels worship maybe more than anything else. If we turn Christianity into a sort of vote for God and he will bless you kind of religion, where the ball is basically in our court to vote him into office somehow, <laughs> um, then we turn Christianity into a pitifully man-centered thing. And, and there's hardly anything left in it to worship. But if you see God as in control, carrying out an eternal purpose infallibly through time, then there's something right there to worship. That's, that's God. God is worthy of worship. You know, God's not just up in heaven responding to the things that we do or don't do. God, God is determined. What a mighty God he is, right? Hmm. One more passage I want to read to you. And I know the kids are back, but this will tie up some of the loose ends for now. And then we can, we can speak more about this because we'll continue to dive into this theme throughout Jacob's life. But. Uh, Look at Ephesians chapter 1. This is where I want to close. Because here Paul uses this same doctrine to tell every Christian what's true about them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, that's election, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before we were born and had done nothing, either good or bad, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, um, which God, verse 8, lavished upon us in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance inheritance, what we're passing on, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. Ephesians 2, we were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, like both Jacob and Esau. But look at verse 4. But God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, but the gift of God so that no one can boast. Wow. Turns out God doesn't like when we boast. 
in anything except him. And I think there's good reason for that. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week as we continue in Jacob's life.